we set expectations, we counsel people appropriately, we deliver on what we say we're going to deliver, hopefully we can prevent those difficult interactions that are so hard for patients and frankly, tough for employees. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Copperman. Dr. Copperman practices in New York City, where he co-founded and serves as the medical director of RMA of New York, which is one of the largest IVF centers in the entire country. He's also the vice chairman of the OBGYN division and REI division at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He also serves as medical director of Progeny. He also serves as chief medical officer of SEMA 4. Dr. Copperman has been named to New York Magazine's list of best docs 18 years in a row. He's been recognized by his peers partly for his publishing of more than 100 original manuscripts and book chapters on reproductive medicine, and he's co-authored over 400 scientific abstracts on infertility, IVF, egg freezing, donation, and reproductive genetics. Dr. Copperman, Alan, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for having me. In the intro, the pre-intro, I should say, you said you think that this is the coolest field in the world. Maybe talk a little bit about that because I think it can guide the rest of the conversation. I think that medicine in general has come to this great point where we can prevent disease, where we can personalize medicine, where we can use big data to drive better decisions. And nowhere is that more apparent than reproductive medicine, where a patient or a couple walking in can very quickly be diagnosed, triaged to appropriate treatment strategies for them, and ultimately succeed in a time that is a fraction of what it used to be. So what I love about reproductive medicine is the personal, the scientific, the ethical, the hands-on, and ultimately the successes. I mean, they're just so meaningful. And you are in a lot of different adjacent verticals to the actual practice of REI medicine. And maybe talk a little bit about why that was important. You know, Progeny is a, is a household name in our field now. And SEMA4 is starting to get more Notoriety. And I don't want to give any of these companies commercials, but I do want to hear about why that's important for someone in your position to do or why you wanted to also be a part of the growing branches that stem from the practice of the medicine itself. You know, I see a lot of these companies and businesses as being parallel and integrated with the delivery of personal care. So while my day job, the most important part of my day job is seeing that patient or that couple in front of me and helping them achieve all their goals, what I found is that partnering with a fertility benefits company to help employers pay for the treatments for their employees, as Progeny does, is game-changing. And to work with Semaphore, a genetics and information company, 
to create information. For example, the genetics test for carrier screening to let a couple know whether they're at risk of having a healthy baby or an unhealthy baby with a certain specific genetic disease. I mean, that is integrated with taking care of the patient in front of me. And my role at Mount Sinai in women's health helps create the environment of academia and scholarship and scientific inquisitiveness that helps us become better doctors, better scientists, and engage the next generation. So all of this ties, I think, into helping the individual. But working with and not against industry, I think, has given us the skills and the tools to achieve success in our community. Is it having too many irons in the fire? No, all these go together. Using information, helping our patients get coverage, advocating for our patients, teaching the next generation. I mean, those are the most exciting parts of the job that integrate so well with taking care of the patient in front of us. How do you balance it? I think one of the challenges that a lot of practice owners have is that we talk about it on every episode of the show. It's essentially what this show deals with. It's a subject matter, which is we talk about the business of reproductive health and the business of practices. And being a practice director or a medical director can be a full-time job in and of itself. And one of the cautionary tales that I give to listeners, to clients, is that whether we like it or not, the REI practice is an entrepreneurial endeavor. So we are in the, the field of business and I have a hard enough time counseling certain folks on how to be able to manage their own business as well as run the practice. You do both plus these different ventures. How do you balance it? Let's talk a little bit about the history of in vitro fertilization. Louise Brown, the first IVF baby in the world, is now 42 years old. It's only been really available in the United States routinely over the last three and a half decades. And traditionally, IVF centers were in hospitals. The problem with putting an IVF center inside of a hospital is that the air handling unit, the microenvironment, the purchasing new technology, even if it hasn't been budgeted for in a traditional hospital budgeting center, the risk that's being taken of having eggs and embryos and sperm stored, all of that has been a real challenge for the traditional brick and mortar hospital. So over the last several decades, there's a branch of physicians, especially reproductive endocrinologists that have found that building an IVF center adjacent to and integrated with the healthcare system and not within a hospital has given the freedom to hire the right embryology team, to retain the right nurse management, to bring in technology as needed. So I think that when you're talking about an entrepreneurial or a business oriented, I think that it became essential over the last decade or two to have the resources invested to deliver the optimal care that we can. And as far as the intersection of finances and medicine, it's a complicated one in America. And we separate the physician's practice from the financial team. We have a whole team that's assigned to coordinate care, concierge medicine, pre-certification team, concierge financial coordinators for patients, so that when the doctor's in front of a patient, it's not about what billing code or what's covered, but that's really a conversation with a coordinator whose job is not to collect money from the patient, but the job is to facilitate the treatment cycle and to optimize the way that that patient can gain benefits as available and minimize the out-of-pocket costs. We've had Michael Levy from Shady Grove on the show and Lou Weckstein from Reproductive Science Center. And among the topics that we talked about there is having an executive team 
that, or at least an executive officer, sometimes an executive director, sometimes the title is chief executive officer, and the chief executive officer is not the medical director, is not the practice director, and is not a physician. So they have the bandwidth to focus on the business, whilst the physicians are shareholders in that business and the physicians are of course medical director and practice director how does your structure at rma of new york compare to those i think that there are specialized people that handle specialized function our scientific director is fantastic and she publishes scientific articles our embryology director handles compliance and regulatory issues are we have breakdown each section that my nurse manager handles her nursing team and her ivf coordinators so I think that it's a very specialized field where we need the right people making the right decisions. You were recommended to have on the show from a number of people who just said that you'd like to stay on the pulse of what's happening in the delivery of care, that that's very important to you, and that practice culture is important to you. Practice culture is one of those things where everyone says that they have it, and some people do, and some people don't. What is the ideal practice culture? And then how is it tangible to where it's not just something that's a mission statement on a wall? Oh, that's such a great question. Focusing on the individual patient, really asking what their needs are and meaning what what are you here for? And family building doesn't necessarily mean having one child or family planning doesn't necessarily mean trying to not get pregnant. But when we look at somebody who comes into our office, we really want to understand, do they want one child? Do they want two? Do they want three child? Do they want a boy or a girl? Are they trying to prevent a disease? What is their name? What is their nickname? What is their preferred pronoun? What is the way that they want to be treated? How do they prefer communicating? Is it email? Is it voicemail? Is it face-to-face? So by understanding patient preferences, we can really cut through a lot of the angst and miscommunication and focus on that patient as an individual. So what I like to think about our culture is that even though we may see hundreds of patients a day throughout our many offices, each one patient that walks in, we want to treat it as the most important day in the world because for many of them, it really is. Talk a little bit about how you've been able to grow that because you're certainly not the practice size that you started with. How does culture scale and how do you not lose it? Well, we started in our practice in 2001 with four physicians, 21 employees, and 300 IVF cycles. And now we're 14 physicians and seven locations, two countries, and you know, hundreds of employees. And yet the screening of each employee, the interviews, the cultural fit, this kind, compassion, detail-oriented, patient-focused personality we've maintained. We actually have 16 of the first 21 people that started with us 18 years ago still are with us and they run a lot of the departments. So that core scientific excellence, compassionate care, patient-focused approach, I think we've been able to maintain throughout a much larger organization. How have you been able to help other people in the organization manifest the culture and expand and resist the temptation to keep your hands in everything? Or are you able to keep your hands out of everything? 
I think as you grow, you just have to delegate to the right people, some of the decision-making, some of the leadership, and then you build a team of people and we learn from each other. We do learning and development. We do team building. We try to flex with the time and communication is key where there are regular meetings. Every Wednesday night, we have the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology from Mount Sinai. That's our team. That's our meeting. And we bring up ethical issues and scientific issues and patient care issues. So I think communication and being open to learning from each other and from the outside has really helped us stay fresh and patient-focused. But it's work. It's not something... Being patient-focused isn't an event. It's not a moment in time. It's like a full thickness commitment to patient care. How have you noticed patient preferences change since 2001? Today's patient is so much more knowledgeable than ever before. They have read bulletin boards, they Google wiki disease, they come with a list of sophisticated questions. And today's doctor, instead of being defensive and old school, like a hierarchical doctor of decades ago saying, well, I'm the doctor and so this is the way it's going to be done, I think learns from patients too. And my team and certainly myself, it's not uncommon to say, you know what, I really hadn't thought of that. Let me do a little bit of research and we'll get back to you if this makes sense for your treatment strategy. I think we're more open to integrative and alternative and complementary medicine. We're interested in integrating with acupuncture studios. We're, we're just open to this wellness culture. So today's patient doesn't necessarily just want to come in and get a shot of gonadotropins or an egg retrieval. I think that they want to be heard. They want transparency. They want information delivered to them in a timely fashion. They're digital. They're sophisticated. And they'd like transparency. They'd like to know how many eggs, how many sperm, how many embryos, what the sequencing, where we're sending the sequencing, what the costs are going to be. So today's patient, I think, is a self-advocate. And it's up to us to meet their needs. I think that all of the expectations that you mentioned are the frustrations of a lot of providers and practices. Can they be met? Can the, this exceedingly demanding expectation, especially for instant correspondence or instant results, are we now at a point where we're meeting many patient expectations simply isn't tenable. It's tough to meet everybody's expectations and it's tough to meet all of the expectations for everybody. So what we need to do is to set appropriate expectations. And there are times if somebody wants that immediacy, there were not every practice and not every doctor is the right fit for every patient. But if we set realistic expectations, and what we can't do is tell a patient that she's going to get a phone call back at nine in the morning and not call her until five with the result. Because that uncertainty, that waiting period creates such anxiety and frustration that by the time you do have that conversation, some of that trust is already lost. So I think setting realistic expectations is essential. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing 
a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person, before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly, and they stress their teams, and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. This is part of what I counsel on. No small part of what our company does now is help people reset those expectations. And this is something that in every talk I give is to say, we might not have been the ones to set the expectations. So it's not our fault as a field, but it certainly is our problem. If patients are coming with a certain set of expectations and they are untenable and we're unable to meet them. So one of the things that we counsel on that we create content for is helping to reset those expectations. So yeah, I've always get people in the door of the world of social media and of content creation via marketing because you can assign a dollar value to it that returns the investment. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Creating content is a way of being able to... I'm also operating on the thesis that content is the solution to many of our problems, especially our patient-facing and public-facing problems. And that these expectations are really important to reset in the beginning. We could do that with video, with written word, with audio, with design, and through the channels of social media and our other web properties. And I think one of the biggest expectations to reset is, or tangential to that, is humanizing our staff. And that means supporting the staff. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, there's the old adage of the customer is always right. And then there are people like me that that think employees come first. Can you talk a little bit about that tension and how you support each side? Yeah, I think that it's important to have a team of employees in the field of reproductive medicine that don't escalate with the difficult situation, that are patient, that are compassionate, that can see from a patient perspective. Somebody who's being late, it's not necessarily because they're disrespectful, but they may have had a tough morning. They may have come off a night shift. They may have had a difficult day. So patient who gets frustrated, they don't really understand the pressures that they're under and financial and emotional and physical and 
people get fired, people have sickness, people have death in their families. So I think that just that moment of compassion for the patient experience and people that deliver bad news can be a lightning rod for bad news, but finding a way to deliver it with that, with kindness and support and uh, that's essential. But sometimes a patient does take out some aggression and that's not okay either because we have to support our employees and not subject them to bullying and harassment. So setting up a culture that is supportive, that prevents forest fires rather than trying to put them out, I think is really important. There's a lot of anxiety that goes with being an infertility patient. There's uncertainty, the stakes are high, there's a tremendous loss of control, and all that stuff really just goes a long way towards putting pressure on every communication, and people are afraid that they're going to hear bad news, and just setting expectations, and you hit it right. What are the right decision support tools? How do we set up realistic expectations so that people have a good idea? They're going to get three eggs or they're going to get 30 eggs. They're going to have a high likelihood of becoming pregnant or not. They're going to have their embryo is going to thaw or has a lower chance. So if we set expectations, we counsel people appropriately, we deliver on what we say we're going to deliver, hopefully we can prevent those difficult interactions that are so hard for patients and frankly, tough for for employees. I don't envy the position of providers because working in a client services agency in a consultancy we don't need a lot of clients or any type of return of volume to to have a really nice business and we get to be really selective of who we take on that's not the case when you're trying to provide care for as many people as possible that need it. And so I think it can be harder for to balance that. Sure. I think that in any high volume situation, one needs to just work on processes. One needs to measure outcomes and needs to constantly take the pulse of our patients and our own pulse to make sure that we're not in the red line. I mean, we don't want our computers running at 90% of capacity because that doesn't give us the reserve. So what we try to do is keep everything on a calmer level so that even when we do have minor escalations and anxiety or uncertainty or conflict, it's certainly resolvable and without a tremendous amount of effort, just a little bit of attention. In the beginning of the episode, you mentioned employer benefits, you mentioned for the genetic testing. What other segments of the field are you paying attention to right now? I think that the molecular aspects of our field are fascinating. You know, in the field of reproductive medicine, we were traditionally trained as surgeons, and now all surgery is being done in a petri dish on eggs and sperm and embryos. And in the future, as we sequence more and more, it's going to be done on the genome with maybe CRISPR or, or related technologies that can not only identify problems, but, but maybe even fix them. But what's incredible in our field is the ability to use genetics to deliver better outcomes. So we thought of infertility as a binary. They're fertile, they're they're not fertile, or they're pregnant, they're not pregnant. And now we realize that it's a continuum. Our goal is a healthy baby, a healthy singleton baby at term in the parent's arms. And anything else of that, miscarriages, twins, uh, failed cycles, uh, missed opportunities to diagnose a genetics disease, we have to really question whether we're really calling that a successful outcome. We're very results-oriented using our molecular tools to deliver optimal outcomes. And that's a huge change from the way we used to practice. 
What does the field need to improve upon, in your opinion, in the next five to 10 years? The next five to 10 years, we need more improved access to care. I mean, New York State finally signed a mandate to have many employers provide fertility benefits for their employees. I'd love to see egg freezing become more available. Right now, certain companies, Facebook and Google for Progeny or, or, or Amazon, and certain companies are focusing on recruiting and retaining their female employees by providing reproductive benefits. But that has to just grow. We have to lose that word elective from, from egg freezing. I think that this is preventative health care. This is an important part of women's health care. So recognizing the role of reproductive aging and preventing reproductive aging with promotion of fertility preservation and recognizing the role of carrier screening. We've gone from testing for Tay-Sachs and cystic fibrosis and a couple of diseases to now two to 300 diseases. And why wouldn't we test prospective parents for all five to 10,000 genetic diseases to see what they're at risk for? So we're using science and technology and precision medicine, I think, to deliver better care. It all sounds expensive. It's actually cost-effective to freeze eggs in a 34-year-old compared to treating a 40-year-old for infertility. It's cost-effective, costing pennies per disease to screen for thousands of diseases rather than having a baby that's suffering a lifetime of a preventable genetic disease. And it's cost-effective to take a population and help them have healthy singleton babies by using the best technology rather than the old world of triplets and quadruplets and octomom, which was creating maternal risks, fetal sickness, and tremendous societal costs. So I think with better medicine, we're actually going to save money. It's such a compelling argument. It's one that has been made on the show often. Do you think the reason why insurance companies have not embraced it is because it's not always the same person's cost, for example, that you know, if the lifetime treatment cost of a genetic disease, for example, might not fall on one insurance company. It could essentially be the, the passing of a, of a buck. Well, I'd rather have lower assisted reproductive technology costs or lower birth costs than, you know, for example, treating a genetic disease down the road because we may or may not be the insurance company responsible for that. Is that part of the reason why insurance companies don't seem to be the ones embracing the cost-saving argument? Well, I'm going to say some insurance companies are actually enlightened and some leadership of companies as some of the major insurers have said, wait a second, if we count the maternal fetal benefit, you know, mom's pregnancy and the baby's cost, and we look at the med surge, laparoscopies and other surgeries and the fertility benefit and the pharmacy benefit, and we put it all together and we do some fancy math, then we could determine optimal pathways to minimize costs for a carrier and improve a journey for a patient. It's all doable. So I'd say that insurance companies and I've been part of helping design some of the benefits, they're starting to get it. They're starting to get that paying for an IVF cycle and screening an embryo and transfer of a single best embryo can actually save more money than all the traditional means of six months of inseminations or fertility pills or fertility shots and inseminations. Those were actually costing more money. So I'd say that we're vectoring towards alignment of comprehensive costs with optimal care. I'm optimistic. With respect to access to care, another topic that we talk about often is the interior of the country. And 
how many younger fertility doctors are moving to the larger cities because they want to work for a place like RMA of New York. And there are less that are opening up independent practices in smaller markets. Is that something you worry about? Well, I think access to care, as you said, is not just in a big city and it's not just for people who can afford it, but access to care is meeting the needs. If there are 7 million infertile women in the United States, then why are there only 250,000 IVF cycles being done? So how are we underserving the population? Or is it a knowledge gap? Is it a financial gap? Is it an access to care geographically? Is it not meeting the cultural needs? So this tremendous opportunity to provide better care. I mean, infertility is a disease. It's a, it's something that creates human suffering, and we need to focus our efforts on delivering efficient care locally. We've got an idea of your perspective on where the field is going and what's important for practice groups to focus on. I'm interested a bit more in the story of how you built one of the largest practice groups in the country. Is that something that you set off to do from the beginning? Did you know that, okay, we're starting off with four docs, it's 2001, and we want this to be a really big thing? How did it grow into what it is? I think that what we realized back in 2000, 2001, was that it was tough to build the best IVF center possible while working full-time for a hospital because the resources needed to have the right equipment, the right incubators, the right air handling units, the right personnel, and going through procurement and waiting and justification, it just it was just a really cumbersome, complicated process. And so we just set out to deliver great care to patients, to have a high success rate lab, to do things the best that they can do. And then it just grew over time. What's the next step for RMA of New York? If you wave a magic wand and everything's gone perfectly in the next three years, what has happened? I think we continue to grow in, in the way that we make care accessible locally to the people of our region. We continue to explore scientifically and try to understand what makes an embryo normal and how to identify the best embryo and how to time the embryo with the right window of implantation in the uterus. And so we just get better at delivering high success rates to our patients. And we build patient tools so that they can integrate more carefully and precisely and timely with the treatment going on. In other words, the right patient portals, the right transfer of information in a way that we meet our patients' needs. The And then look, languages, cultures, LGBT outreach, fertility preservation for pediatric cancers. And I see this field as having so many opportunities to get better at what we do. So for RMA, it's just contributing scientifically and never losing sight of that individual patient in front of us. So whether it's about access to care or entrepreneurship in the field or maintaining the state of the art and advancing the state of the art for practices, how would you want to conclude with our audience? I think whoever the audience is that's listening, self-advocating, demanding excellence, insisting on transparency. What are my chances? What, how has your practice delivered results to patients who are like me, my age, my hormone levels? How can I best communicate so that my needs are met when I walk in the door to 
my next visit. So for people in industry that listen to the podcast, I'd say never losing sight of the individual patient. And to healthcare providers that are listening to the podcast, put yourself in the patient's shoes and remember that we're here. We're so fortunate in this field to play a role in creating families and helping people through difficult times. It really is, I think, the coolest part of medicine. And that is a pretty cool phrase. It should go in your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Dr. Alan Copperman, thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. It's really been a privilege participating. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.